Welcome to episode four, maybe even episode three and a half of Under Futures. This is a special episode. I'm your host, Scott Smith, and um, we're in a magical place right now uh, that we'll describe to you in a little more detail in a few minutes, but you're not hearing the normal um, kind of background noise of an office uh, or hotel room recording. This time we're in slightly more, I wouldn't say natural surroundings, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you more detail on that in a second. But... Um, with me right now is a great pleasure to have uh, Greg Lindsay. Greg is a, uh, a urbanist, uh, futurist, writer, researcher, uh, host of the Comotion podcast. Which, by the way, this is a special edition joint production uh, with Comotion podcast. We'll tell you more about it at the end. Um, but Greg is with me here in um, Mazdar City. Um, one of the, the most famous case studies of smart cities just on the outskirts of Abu Dhabi uh, in the UAE. And we are comfortably ensconced in a, in a nice patio set just outside a cafe here. Um, and we've been exploring this morning, exploring uh, some of the kind of ghostly bones of Smart City 1.0, um, playing with uh, new modes of mobility. And uh, Greg, how are you? I'm good. I, I nearly broke my shoulder when a Navio autonomous <laughs> shuttle stopped without warning before I read the sign that said sudden braking. Um, so, yes. So, show, yeah, show me on the model where the robot hurt you. <laughs> yes. I've got the bruises to show for that I'm here. But it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me here. And um, it's, it is. It's actually genuinely a pleasure to be here at Mastar, to see it in the flesh, to see the render made, made, the render made flesh. And um, and yeah, and I have to say, as a as a walkable pocket of urbanity, Mastar works. Uh, I was I was here in the UAE in, in February with Wolfgang Kessling, who uh, runs Transolar, which is the uh, you know, microclimate engineering firm that worked with Norman Foster on this. And and you know, Wolfgang made claims that they did good work here. And I have to say, we're sitting in a, in shade. There is wind, um, there is cover, and um, and there's nobody here except right. us. There's, that's <laughs> that's the failure of the model, you might say. Yeah. And the occasional robot cowboy. Um, wrong city. Uh, but this, yeah, I think that's one of the amazing things. Is it's, it's early May. Um, it's probably 34, 35 Celsius outside right now. And it is reasonably comfortable. Um, we're sort of sitting underneath the shade of some aesthetically pleasing solar installations above us. Um, terracotta buildings just to one side. Uh, birds have kind of moved in. Um, but uh, tell us something about Mazdar. Um, tell us, tell us what, what it looks like from your perspective, or what it, what it was, or what it is. Yeah, I mean, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, I mean, Mazdar was one of those classic, you know, pre-financial crisis conceptions of the UAE. Um, you know, in this case, you know, rendered by Abu Dhabi rather than Dubai, um, as part of you know Abu Dhabi sort of you know general directorate, which I once phrased in my book if you know if Dubai is Las Vegas, then Abu Dhabi wants to be Palm Springs, uh, a bit more a bit more high design and a bit more classy. And, um, and so that, of course, led them to, well, it led them to, you know, Ferrari World and a Formula One track as well. But it also produced this vision. Mazdar was going to be, of course, this, this test bed. And it made sense, obviously, for the UAE. You know, when you have this much sun and this much sand, you should be a world leader in solar and other renewable technologies and also as part of your attempts to diversify your economy. And so that, of course, as it does in 
really the UAE, but also in China and elsewhere, this notion that you know we're going to totalize this vision of sustainability by building a place. We're going to do a real estate project, or we're going to totalize it in, in, in physicality. And so that you know that led to hiring Norman Foster and, and Wolfgang and the others, uh, led them to build you know this what exists now is really a walled fortress. We were comparing it to the rendered map, and we're really, of course, in only a small portion of the footprint. Um, but really, we're in this sort of you know it reminds me of, in a way kind of of like you know Sana and Yemen, you know this notion of this sort of vertical desertish city um, where within the footprint yes it is you know arguably sustainable but then of course you have the whole you know uh, uh, ghastly paradox of the fact that you know it exists in a drivable only landscape there is of course a giant parking lot next door filled with German sedans and SUVs um, and that you know the, the, the personal rapid transport system that was designed to ferry people from the parking lot through the complex the PRT is no longer anywhere to be found there's now autonomous shuttles and scooters representative of that second generation of mobility and, um, and yeah, we now sort of exist in really sort of the, the next phase of its life. What will Mass Art do with the rest of its life? Because it's sort of outlived the vision that created it in a way, and it remains to be seen whether they will build the rest of it, particularly since there appears to be other buildings within its footprint that exist now, a Carrefour hypermarket, in fact. <laughs> but it's only, you know, it's been open for, um, you know, less than a decade, less than probably half a decade, really. Um, it's not old enough to be, you know, an ex smart city yet um, and I think that's one of the sort of fascinating things but I want to come back to that idea in a minute but um, just your description of you know what's in the car park versus what we were just talking about on uh, we just recorded an episode of commotion um, and flipped the chairs at this table but talk to me a little bit about the difference between the sort of the the zoology of mobility outside the walls versus inside the walls uh, of Mazdar Right. Well, as you know, as you can expect, you know, the UAE, of course, is, you know, one of the most auto-dependent, you know, uh, nations in the world. I mean, gasoline is effectively subsidized in the way where it's effectively free. Um, and so, of course, at least... I'll, I'll remember all, that when we stop in a few minutes to get a new um, tank. All right. Well, it's the, Amer <laughs> the American in me. I can only imagine the Europeans listening. But, you know, but massive subsidies to, to fuel the sort of automotive lifestyle. And, yeah, and, you know, on the way here, driving from the edge of the empty quarter, you know, you can sort of see, you know, these very, you know, large walled estates, literally walled estates, part of a function, of course, of the conservative religious social culture of the UAE uh, and its neighbors and and yeah and, you know and it's basically you know in place where walking is, is nearly impossible in large parts of its urban footprint uh, which is then reinforced by its right. climate which is of course is in a vicious spiral of this from climate change so it's fascinating to see that because then you enter the footprint and then you enter into what those of us who are in the sort of future mobility landscape would say is sort of the, is the is today's you know landscape of this where there are uh, really on the edge of it you walking into the Siemens building we saw a docked bicycle station we saw uh, you know, uh, quickly, you know, dockless scooters standing in attention waiting for us. And then, you know, the unusual sight of a, of a stranded Navia uh, shuttle that they had to come out and correct, which then took us on a loop to effectively nowhere till we were delivered to a parking garage where a <laughs> natural gas powered car then delivered us back to where we started. So, yeah, so, you know, the various typologies at play here. And, you know, again, it's sort of the, the dichotomy between the toy systems on the inside where they actually function but don't function anywhere versus, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the predominant typology on the outside. And um, it's sort of interesting, you know, I, I, things I didn't realize until I was here is that if you look at the old renders of Mazdar, down of the render is a golden spiral, is a golden sort of, yeah, is a, is a, a sort of swirl that oh, runs right, through yes. it. That's not a mobility system. It's not a tram or a metro or anything else I thought it was. It's the highway, which I didn't realize until we drove down it. So even, even in the heart of the world's most sustainable development, there was always a highway that cut through it. It's, 
Yeah, there's so much, so much to kind of unpack there. The, I mean, I, this whole time we've been sitting here, I've been staring directly at two Teslas that are, they're not parked at electric charging, but they're just kind of sitting quietly amongst the other cars, um, almost pleading with us, sort of like the, uh, the Navia shuttle, you know, is like, it sat there sort of plaintively um, uh, playing its alarm sound, asking us to get inside and go for a ride. You know, it's, it's almost sort of the metaphorical promise of sustainable mobility. Um, the scooters are sort of scattered around. At least two of them I couldn't get uh, booted up on the app. Um, so, it, you know, it's kind of the future, the types of futures that we often talk about, which are like great on paper, but reality bites. You know, reality sort of breaks these, these totalizing visions, as you said, of, you know, what, what a future should look like. So, um, you know, now we're, we're sort of eulogizing, you know, what's been here. But as I said, it's like it's too young to be counted down as a, counted out as a kind of ex smart city. Um, what kind of thing could happen here? Like when you look at this and you see it, um, you know, there's, there's universities tucked in here and there. Um, there's a few residents, but a lot of empty residencies. Um, but if you showed this to, to, you know, people, quote unquote, back home, they would look at it and think I would come there in a second. Like what, what could be done with a place like this? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. This is the this is the first place I've seen in the UAE where I would really live. I mean, it's really place that's an actual sort of walkable urban realm. And you know, I don't know how often I would leave except to go to care for it. But <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it's it's too. I mean, the infrastructure is completely new. It's it's too old to be a, a sunk cost. I mean, it is a sort of retro future too. But that's sort of the beauty of it. I mean, Mastar is already passed into the realm of almost the mythical, right? Um, and, and, you know, to me, it's interesting in the sense of, you know, they're still building housing here. And, you know, we've estimated that, you know, this place is maybe a, a tenth occupied. So what's interesting is, is, you know, is rather than think about the sort of top-down formulation about what institutions and what partnerships and you bring in Siemens and GE and, and you know, Khalifa University, um, what if we take the opposite tack of this? What if we just simply brought in uh, a lot of cool people and filled it? And, and you know, and, the, and the, this is the classic sort of artist-led gentrification strategy, right? We need to gentrify a master is what needs to happen now. And, you know, what if we simply created a, a residency program, right? And we just invited people at the intersection of art and sustainable technology to come here and fill it. I mean, the thing I'm most struck by is, besides the absence of people, is is that, you know, even though vehicles are sort of banished to the edges, or at one of those edges where there are trucks and things, um, you know, there's big walkable boulevards that could be filled with all manner of experimentation. You have all these building types, and I wonder if this is sort of a UNESCO World Heritage site where, you know, we get our hands slapped by Norman Foster for messing with his creation. But, you know, this is a living test bed of sorts, isn't it? I mean, we could imagine yeah. all sorts of, of startups tinkering with the buildings in, in a sense of, you know, going back to that classic notion of, of Building 42 at MIT, we're poking holes in the walls and inviting everyone to really be a living user of the space itself. Um, you know, I think I think the problem with this is that they dictated the intentions and tried to work backwards from those plans. And really, you know, we need to think about how would you just fill it with people and invite them to make it their own. I, that'd be the starting place for me. Right. So the, the master plan street finds its own uses for things, right? The uh, just as you were talking about that, a bus pulled up, and I was worried that a bu- that like a bunch of artists were going to flood off of it. And then I realized we hadn't posted the episode yet. But um, yeah, if that's an interesting idea, hit us up at under at underfutures on Twitter and and uh, let us know. Um, yeah, there's actually a school a school group uh, who's just just embarking to take off. Um, what are your uh, you know larger kind of impressions of you said you've been here on sort of multiple visits you've been here over time thinking back to your sort of first visit to the region to where we are now and kind of seeing what you've seen and know what you know what what are your sort of impressions of 
the the arc that this area is on uh, towards any particular future? Oh, well, that's a great question. I mean, my first visit to the UAE was in 2006, you know, because I wanted to see, you know, when Dubai was the phenom, you know, covered in the, in the popular culture before, of course, the crash, and then it sort of entered the rest of its life. And, um, you know, first thing I did, of course, was ask a cab driver to take me to the Mall of the Emirates to go see the ski slopes. <laughs> um, so I did that. And, but, but it was also interesting, too, that one of the first things I saw was a group of young Emirati women trying on ski suits and seeing the sort of completely foreign context of that. And that, to me, has always been interesting. I mean, I mean the thing about... Um, Dubai and the UAE is in the sense of it's certainly not a melting pot. It is layers of stratification, but it's the place sort of where, you know, where, you know, yeah, neoliberalism and American consumer culture and markets without democracy is distilled into its purest form. And you can sort of see globalization out the window of your taxi where you are sitting in an air conditioned environment playing with your phone. And outside, of course, is a South Asian immigrant who is building the latest iteration of whatever real estate driven project in 125 degree Fahrenheit heat in 90 percent humidity. So, you know, the distance, the critical distance has collapsed to, you know, 100 feet, perhaps or less. Um, so in terms of trajectory, I mean, it is, it is still interesting where, you know, um, you know uh, knowing our, our mutual friends here in the region and some of the mobility projects here with like the Dubai self-driving transport challenge and their efforts to have a large percentage of trips by autonomous vehicle and, and efforts to build hyperloops and all these sorts of things is, is that they're still trying to make, you know, sort of, um, you know, 21st century enlightened despotism work, you know, as Tom Friedman put it, you know, beat China for one day. And, and you know, I mean, here, here the UAE lives that dream every day. So, you know, I still haven't seen signs that it's going to lead to an ultimate path that, you know, that, um, you know, that I would ultimately want to uh, emigrate to versus the United States because, you know, I still don't see any signs of, like, the institutions that would backstop it. But it is, is it ultimately fascinating in the sense of, you know, watch them try to cut and paste the world into it. Um, I don't know, but, you know, is it going to lead to a more sustainable future? I can't, based on any reasonable climate change projections, I can't bet on it. And I still have to ask, like, at what point does this region become unlivable based purely on sort of climate modeling? Um, it strikes me that we're, I mean, frankly, it strikes me that we're in a place without a future. Which is interesting. I think there's, there's yeah, the, that's, that's one possible outcome. I mean, there are definitely, there are forecasts looking at, you know, average temperatures of 50, sort of upwards of 50 and above 50 C, you know, in summertime, um, you know, some systems break down here. But on the other hand, um, you know, you've got, the opportunity to use the the sort of the, the tip of the climate spear, sort of an environment that's you know one of the first into that very kind of difficult zone to work out how you know how the rest of us live potentially. I mean this this kind of structure that we're sitting in right now, I think was initially designed with a kind of idea like that in mind, except not as extreme a, a, a sort of possible you know future that is going to exist in. So can you actually use this to test how you live? in a hotter climate with less water, you know, in, uh, with different sort of governance and economic structures, all of that is a kind of test bed. And that, I think that was the intention all along. I mean, when I was, I was here a few months ago talking about this with Wolfgang Kessling from Transolar, um, you know, he insisted that was in fact the goal of this and that was in fact possible that, you know, using the complements of, you know, microclimate technologies, you could actually create livable pockets even inside a more extreme climate environment. Um, the question Mastart raises, though, is like they successfully built one, it would appear to us in our very short site visit, um, but it quickly was, you know, surrounded, outlapped, outpaced by conventional development models. There the question 
question becomes, as you know, is always challenged here is, is you know, how do you build more places like Mazdar in a conventional, you know, financialization of real estate scheme right. where, where, yeah, where all markets point to singular product types and less complexity and, you know, less investment in technology. In fact, they point to the Terrafor that is sitting outside of here, you know, the Hypermart that uh, appears to be almost as large as its complex itself. Well, I mean, yeah, to your point, it's competing with... Is competing with returns on additional, you know, um, investment property or you know, leisure and hospitality building. Uh, it's also sitting right next. to, It's worth noting you can't really hear it, the overflight, but it's sitting right next to uh, Abu Dhabi Airport. So, you know, you've got a, a kind of carbon production facility sitting right next to a, a you know, a net zero intentioned uh, uh, living space. Um, so I guess all those, all of those things are sort of com- jostling and competing with each other in real time, which seems to be a, a kind of microcosm of the worldwide problem right now, right? That we're, you know, trying to figure out how you kind of keep operating a, a, an unsustainable petroleum economy uh, and kind of unsustainable carbon model while trying to build and transition over to something other sustainable during the lifetimes of people who could be on the boards of those companies and or, you know, whose investments have, are tied up in them. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a, so I, I hosted a roundtable recently for, uh, for Urban X, which is BMW Mini's, uh, you know, uh, urban tech accelerator. So I published a magazine for them. And for our next issue, we're having a sort of roundtable on, yeah, the venture capital model and the Green New Deal. And, you know, and basically, like, can we chart a path to a carbon zero world or significantly carbon reduced, let's say, just Paris Accord model through the conventional, yeah, basically market driven approaches to this? Or, yeah, do you need the sort of political-led model of the Green New Deal? And, and you know, one of the things to point out by you know, uh, David Zipper, who's at the German Marshall Fund, who went through 1776, you know, he pointed out that, you know, the Green New Deal doesn't seem to be struck by market-based efficiencies. It's really about a sense of social justice and politics and models that seem completely foreign to this sort of mindset. So, you know, we were, we were addressing about whether, you know, whether, yeah, given, given the amount of just sort of sunk assets, you know, that would have to be replaced or, or, or stranded by, you know, any reasonable carbon regime, can we really expect the marketplace to do that? And this comes up even with, you know, enlightened VCs like Sean Abramson at Urban Us, uh, who was one of the recipients there. It's like, yeah, he said he struggled for years just trying to get people to listen to him and raise funds because they would adopt blank looks the moment he told them that, like, I basically want to obsolete half of your investment portfolio. That's my investment hypothesis. And yet, we have you know news yesterday that um, the Indonesian government needs to move Jakarta, not ju- not well, just it's not moving Jakarta, yeah. it's moving the capital, <laughs> well, exactly. leaving Jakarta, yeah, exactly. which is where this goes. J- Jakarta with a small J. It's a cult, uh, the, but the, yeah, the idea that here you have an entire nation that has to sort of pick up its capital city and move it, not because it wants to build a you know lovely Niemeyer you know capital in the jungle, but because it it needs to find another place for those 10 million people to stay alive, not just to live, but to stay alive. Is that kind of, you know, the, the feed of that kind of news um, sort of yank any sense of reality into this equation now versus where we were maybe even three or five years ago? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. This comes back to, uh, I mean, frankly, I think any, any real effort, and this to me is the whole problem, of course, with, you know, the larger mindset of trying to grapple with climate change and, and sea level rise, is like, you know, any honest attempt to grapple with the implications of it leads you quickly to a state of, of Lovecraftian horror, right? It feels like it's like it's like looking at looking at a flooded Jakarta and the real implications of that is like staring Cthulhu in the face. You know, right. insanity is the only rational outcome of that. So, so yeah, I mean, this is and this comes up in books like you know, like um, you know, David Walsh Wells, you know, the uh, 
forget the title of it, but it's the, you know, the climate apocalypse book or Nathaniel Rich's, you know, losing earth, like, you know, dealing with, um, dealing with the real implications of this quickly lead one to, uh, stepping back from the honest implications of it, I feel. Is there even any room for, for quote unquote smart cities as an idea in that kind of paradigm in that model? Well, this was the goal of what was smart cities for? I mean, now we get into like, I feel like we're drifting into Adam Curtis land a little bit here. But, <laughs> but in the sense of like, I mean, smart cities were all about regulation, right? I mean, smart city, the smart city paradigm of a decade ago proposed by IBM, Cisco and others that really informed this model, it's GE and, and Siemens here, was about adopting a sort of steady state, arguably club of Rome model where, you know, you know what you want to manage, you want to manage for the world, but 10% more efficient. Right. And that's what we'll get to. And, you know, and the critique of that has always been that it leaves out politics and it leaves out sort of, it, it seems to sort of shrink the available solution space, I feel like that. Yeah, this is the kind of cybernetics model of, you know, a, a, a perfectly functioning closed system. Yeah, and, and, and having for my sins been in my past life a, a, a sort of technology and telecom forecaster, I always saw smart cities as being, you know, the next, it's, it's the next, you know, line of business, the next revenue opportunity above um, selling network infrastructure, right? You needed something to sit on the network infrastructure to make it even more monetizable. And so you start wiring buildings and, and you know, whole facilities and larger, you know, city blocks. Um, so it was, yeah, the next, the next sales opportunity up the line. Well, yeah, coupled with the, you know, the success of the Apple iTunes store. I mean, I remember talking about the Cisco executives, you know, when they, when they invested in Songdo in 2009, uh, you know, Songdo being the, the sort of Korean cousin of Mazdar in a way, um, you know, yeah, I mean, they saw it as basically a chance to build an, an Apple app store for everyday life and they would just sell you things, you know, and, and that's, that's, and that's, that's the, a very you know, depressing, uh, yeah, in app purchases. And it's the common critique of, of Internet of Things in this whole model. I mean, you have Ganey Morozov, it's digital feudalism, as Morozov would tell you, and, and other critiques of this, and, and Zuboff's, you know, surveillance capitalism, it all sort of leads to that model with this. Um, so, yeah, we're, you know, and that sort of thing, you know, are, are we inside a, I feel like we're inside a, a giant, um, shed carapace or something like this like <laughs> mass is waiting to be reborn that you know that, that they built this great infrastructure um you know we may feel the model is obsolete in a way but the, 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 we can make something of this someone can so we'll sort of change gears for a moment and um just because we we have, you know known each other for a while and communicated for a while but um don't always kind of get to to you know, stick our heads in each other's work. What are you working on right now that's really interesting? Or what are you working on right now that's not really interesting? <laughs> uh, What's well, exciting in Greg world? Well, completely different. When it comes to like, you know, immediate futures, I'm working on a project right now at the New Cities Foundation out of Montreal on sort of um, imagining where the millennial generation will go in an American context to raise their children, right? The oldest millennials are turning 39. Uh, was it Joe Biden just made a joke about, you know, millennials in college? The millennials are no longer in college. They're, they're as a cohort, I guess the youngest ones are 20. Right. But, you know, as a cohort, they're adults and they're middle-aged adults, effectively. So, And some of them you know, have not been voting for 20 years, as my uh, colleague Susan Cox-Smith likes to point out on Twitter. So, yeah, so I'm trying to figure out, you know, will they follow their boomer parents into the same sort of, you know, suburban, I would call it suburban trap, which, again, tying to sort of energy, climate, you know, commuting time models here, or what will they do? And, you know, it's interesting, what, you know, the hypothesis early, and we're building some data around this is, is that, uh, as in all things, there's you know just basically rampant inequality. You know the, the the millennials who have the who have the cash, whose boomer parents are handing it down to them, are investing in high value urban real estate or close in suburbs with transit access, places where they do have higher walk scores and are retaining value. Those who have less resources are being pushed out to the urban periphery, where exurban sprawl is their only option. So they're condemned to an automotive lifestyle. And then, of course, the worst are those who are trapped in poverty from the beginning. You know, the millennials who are not, you know, educated white children or, or white middle-aged people. I should, I should say. 
and yeah, and are effectively being displaced out of um, high-value urban land into decaying suburbs. Um, and so that's sort of like the, the various three-ring model of cities, the three-speed shifts. And so, yeah, I'm sort of looking at, you know, who are the developers who are, you know, and, and who are the cities that are trying to pursue policies that will actually, um, yeah, try to build, you know, a more sustainable urban realm and, and try to keep the, these millennials within it. Um, there's all sorts of interesting cynical takes about, you know, sort of how gentrification has become youthification, to quote the academic Marcus Moves, where, like, basically those have blurred together, where it's permanently, you know, hipster 20-somethings and eating out of shipping container beer gardens. Uh, I've met multiple, um, you know, real estate investors who are building investment hypotheses around scooters. Well, I know where I'm not taking you later. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I mean, they're building investment hypotheses around scooters, like where scooter availability and, and where the walkable scores are. So, yeah, so basically, you know, imagining building a, a nation of Mazdar. Isn't that know. just like recreating golf courses, but, but 50 years later, like golf country clubs? But instead of a golf country club, it's a town center now where you basically have pockets of urbanity that you drive to, and that's where you live in. And so sort of golf urbanism replicated. Pockets of urbanity seems like a, a, an oxymoron. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and, and, you know, and, and the sort of thing is you talk to, you know, enlightened developers like Christopher Leinberger, who's a developer, but he teaches at George Washington University in Brookings. And, you know, I'm still tell you that's better than the status quo. You're at least creating some sort of, of you know, a simulacra of the urban realm, which will become urban over time, arguably. Um, you know, it's better than what the boomers had. So in our last, last episode of Under Futures, that's a hard sentence to say, the last episode of Under Futures um, with um, my co-host Madeline Ashby, who couldn't be here today in part because we're on the other side of the world and times aren't uh, equitable to have her up in the middle of the night or early morning. But also John Wilshire, um, a good friend, joined us and we talked a lot about kind of co-working and and what's become of nomadism and sort of digital nomadism and, and the way that we sort of surf through urban space not not the way that kind of the figures in, a, in an architectural render do but we're you know it's it's kind of the walking dead we're sort of climbing our way through trying to find power outlets and uh you know jason boarding our way through through horizontal laptop space um it's, it's like the city in the city we squeeze by each other invisibly through spaces we're not acknowledged to see that yeah that metaphor is <laughs> that idea has sort of popped into my head before it's like see only co-working um, what do you think that sort of model seems to be evolving towards? Because our, our kind of starting hypothesis in the episode was, you know, that the, the, the decade or more of the sort of happy, fun, fun, you know, open office space with ping pong tables and beer and, and uh, you know, building little communities of, of loving people, uh, all watched over by trackable Fitbits. Um, what do you think that model is heading towards? Or is it changing? Is it dying? Is it turning into something else? Is it like the Grapes of Wrath, but with uh, iPads? Well, it's, I mean, it's corporatized to some extent. I mean, you know, I, I've been following co-working for like, I don't know, almost more than more than half a decade. I remember meeting Adam Newman when WeWork was in stealth. If you can believe a time when Adam Newman wouldn't give an interview to Paperclip. <laughs> um, you know, and um, yeah, you know, I kind of, I was going to write a whole book about this and kind of abandon it in sort of despair because of where it ended up going. And, and you know, I mean, there's a couple of vectors there. I mean, one, I mean, you know, it's interesting to me, if you if you go back to Toffler, right, in Future Shock in 1970, you know, Toffler argued that cities would cease to exist. McLuhan made the same argument, right? Like, you know... The electronic were, cottage. Yeah, the electronic cottage, and we would telepresence into work. And instead, the opposite happened, where all that is solid melted into air except for work, where face-to-face -face work still exists because of the need to coordinate 
Um, or, you know, or at least just the sort of social animal left in us to do that while we all slacked our way. And now we have sort of like two track workflows in the cloud and in person, which leads us to crawl through urban environments like zombies while really our heads are in the cloud, so to speak. And yeah, and then of course the sort of next layer to that is the sort of, you know, social metric tracking where, you know, we're sort of seeing, you know, the, uh, you know, companies increasingly wire up to better understand the micro patterns inside their organizations. And, you know, at one point I was sort of, you know, I, you know, back when we were all optimistic about this, I always came back to the sort of Bill Joy notion that, you know, no matter who you are, most of the smart people work for someone else. And the sort of co-working model offered us a way to, uh, you know, work with the smartest people alongside them, even if we don't necessarily come together. And I think there's a little bit of hope left in that model, right? Um, I mean, the fact that we're sitting here, the fact that, you know, the Changest is a firm that does have sort of affiliates, like, you know, if you believe Ronald Coase, you know, the economist who wrote The Nature of the Firm 75 years ago, you know, right now we'd be experiencing the heat death of the corporation. We'd be free agent nation in the fast company sense. And like, instead we sort of hit the bottom and dead cat bounce back up into these sort of micro firms and these new ways of aligning work. And you know, I mean, for those of us who are entitled, you know, knowledge workers like you and me, this is a good thing. I mean, but ultimately, I think we have to acknowledge, like, it's another permutation of, like, the way of work consuming everything and everything is work and we don't shop at stores anymore and the urban realm is dissolving because we're ordering everything through Amazon because we're chained to our co-working guests. So let's go one layer in from that um, and that, you know, I've, I've actually spent a lot of time recently going back over some of Toffler's early work and... Uh, for, for numerous reasons yet to be disclosed, but um, you know, he, like he and he and his, and his wife and, and collaborator and, co and partner Heidi Toffler, you know, started out as kind of labor journalists, and they actually started out, you know, investigating or looking at labor conditions in factories in the 1950s and 60s, which sort of drew him, you know, seeing what automation was doing to you know the industrial base and what was happening in sort of major cities. Uh, you know, it, 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 it drew him to this idea that um, society would be disrupted because of the shifts in work and the changes that that would, um, the changes that that would create in um, the kind of nuclear family and the social structure. Um, that if you kind of go back to his early 1965 article on Horizons, you know, that seems to be what he's pointing at is like, what happens to the working man, and he used that, you know, sort of terminology, what happens to the working man and the sort of the, the housewife when that traditional, you know, early 20th century um, industrial age working model starts to shift and change because of technology? Um, so, you know, we've, as, as we're sitting here kind of co-working, talking, recording two podcasts, as two white guys do, um, also talking about families and moving and moving to different countries, you know, our, our, albeit privileged social lives are, you know, all kind of tangled up in this. And this is also the problem with people who are on zero hours contracts and people who are, you know, clamoring for, for well-deserved social justice in terms of working conditions. You know, the U.S. feels like a tinderbox. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it feels like we're halfway, and it feels like in a way we're only halfway through that sort of Toffler predictor revolution. I mean, we're, right now we're at the point where, you know, Amazon has algorithms to automatically fire people. Um, you know, I, I, you know I, I know people who've come out of the MIT Media Lab who are, who are, you know, very smart positivists about how data can enhance work, who don't understand that really the most pernicious use of technology, no matter how irrational it is, is probably the most likely outcome of it. <laughs> and then, of course, yeah, I mean, you talk about a Tinderbox. I mean, I, my favorite... Um, 
my favorite immediate reaction to the 2016 election was someone anonymous on Twitter who posted the Bureau of Labor Statistics map of the most populous job in every state, which was trucking, which was when we really thought autonomous trucking was about to happen. So that future was delayed a little bit. And then, of course, the Electoral College map. And, you know, we can just sort of see where this is going to go. And, yeah, and, you know, yeah, I've certainly reached the point where there's no technological, you know, uh, uh, salvation from this. There's a there's a larger political shift, whether it's, you know, fully automated luxury communism or whatever else we get out of it. But, you know, there has to be some sort of cybernetic New Deal, Green New Deal or something. Yeah, it makes me wonder about what the political shift of that is, because you're no longer talking about, um, you know, kind of suburban, suburban political segmentation in places like the U.S., um, because you and I have been talking a lot about the 2020 election and the uh, in the sort of quieter moments in the last few days being together. Um, uh, you know, can you can you forecast any new sort of uh, electoral segments or political segments that emerge by 2020 or even by 2022 that come from this kind of transition? I don't know. Well, the only the only weak signals that I can think of is um, I think it's interesting that you know that Bill Gates proposed a robot tax, and the only people who took him up on it were the French, <laughs> and also my congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. And I mean, the only the only glimmer of, of hope that I get out of the U.S. political establishment on this, given that our you know octogenarian senators you know don't even understand how to ask questions about technology, is that AOC was at you know South by Southwest this year and really started raising some of these interesting questions about what is work, what is the dignity of work, and she argued that we should not weep for the toll booth taker who no longer has to take the toll. We need to create, but we need to create a new, more just form of work and, and distribution of this to make that happen. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, instead of Toffler's notion of labor, where he sort of presumed that capitalism would go on, is that we, we need to go back to Asimov's thinking about it will be a it will be a, a utopian world where the robots do the work. I mean, the problem with automation is not the technology, it's the political economy of it, right? So here we are in this kind of nested model at the end of the episode, sitting in a utopia, talking about utopia. Um, but definitely we're not, we're two non-utopians. <laughs> but we're also, we're also in a state where, as dystopian as it can be at times, um, where the government does provide for its citizens, those who, in fact, qualify for citizenship, but, you know, a very generous social benefits model, underwritten, in this case, by fossil fuels, rather than the productivity gains of technology. So there are other models we can see. Well, um, we will end this episode here. Um, it's getting a little bit warmer outside. We're approaching midday, um, but still actually quite comfortable here in, in the uh, the bones of Mazdar. Um, Greg, it's been a pleasure to have you uh, sit in on this, um, this hybrid special edition joint episode. Um, you can hear Greg over it. So, so give us a, a station ident for Commotion. I would say station ID. For those of you who want to listen to the mobility-focused half of this podcast, please tune in to the Commotion Mobility Podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever fine podcasts are sold. Um, thank you very much, Greg. And uh, we will see you out there next time. Thanks. This was an episode of Under Futures made by Changist. We welcome your comments and ideas. Subscribe to Under Futures on Anchor, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or other podcast platform. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Under Futures, all one word. See you next time.